Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. Thanks for joining me wherever you are. I hope you're keeping well. My guest this week is, and I'm reading now from the back of his latest book, A House Divided, The Feud That Took Cape Town to the Brink, is Chippy Olver, medical doctor, political leader, environmental activist, and public servant. Former public servant. He was part of the 1994 administration, head of planning for the reconstruction and development program, went to run the Department of Environmental Affairs and Tourism. So he has a long history in the relationship with government. Um, as I mentioned, his second book, entitled The House Divided, is forms part of the discussion. Uh, the book started out as a, a look at the mismanagement by the DA of the water crisis in Cape Town, kind of transformed into more a look at so the business of local government in Cape Town, party political funding, political power, personalities. Um, Patricia DeLille uh, looms large as a, as, a, as a figure in the book, um, and, much, and much, much more. It's, uh, it's, it's fascinating, complicated, um, and uh, we spent some time, I didn't want to get into too much of the nitty-gritty of the book, but we looked at some of the issues around local government, local government legislation, um, the tensions between the bureaucrats on the one hand, city officials, and the elected party representatives, the mayor's office in particular, um, and just the challenges of, of building houses, uh, property rights, land issues that face uh, local governments. Uh, we also talked about the current and possible future of the of the Democratic Alliance, given the crisis it's facing at the moment, uh, the difficult choices facing the ANC, the current state of the ANC. Um, he's an unabashed supporter of Cyril Ramaphosa. We spoke a little bit about that campaign and why he remains. Uh, committed to Cyril Ramaphosa's uh, presidency. So, yeah, please enjoy my chat now with Chippy. Okay, Chippy, thanks again for your time. Hi, I, Nick. I was, just, I was just thinking the last time we did this, you were also on a book tour. Yeah. Uh, that was about two years ago, a little bit, yeah, around about two years ago. That was... Um, your How to Steal a City. Yeah, my first foray. Your first foray into local government or the politics of local government. Uh. And now you're on a book tour, a draining, I can imagine, at some levels, book tour uh, with your new book, uh, A House Divided, The Feud That Took Cape Town to the Brink. Um, ostensibly, as I understand it, you started out that particular project not as a way to balance your, <laughs> your um, the work that you did um, regarding the ANC in, in Nelson Mandela Bay with your first book, but you just you were in, you're from Cape Town. You were intrigued mainly by the the, the, the mismanagement of the water crisis mm. in Cape Town. Yeah, but you monumental mismanagement. But you stumbled across something else, or rather, you found the discovered that the foundations to that mismanagement were actually the result of something else completely. Is that kind of... Yeah. Could, could you just maybe go a little bit into to how you, you, you kind of went down yeah. a rabbit hole into yeah. property development and party funding, and that seemed quite removed from the water crisis, but yet kind of was one of the major issues that Cape Town faced suddenly? Yeah, so, I mean, what, what I try and do in, in each city I look at is peel away the layers. So, you know, you look at the surface narrative and then you want to try and understand what lies behind that and then you want to see what lies behind that. And I'd left uh, the last city. Uh, I mean, the, the process of writing How to Steal a City was quite cathartic, but I did feel there were some unanswered questions. Uh, left by the last book, and um, as you know, uh, you, you're aware, it, 
So how to steal a city is about a sort of classic state capture patronage network l locking onto a municipality. Right. But I had this nagging feeling that there are parts of local government that have been captured for a very long time. Mm. Um, and you know we all know about how morally bankrupt and corrupt a lot of the uh, you know apartheid municipalities were, um, and there were you know systematic corruption scandals in black local authorities, and even you know so some of the big cities like Joburg and Cape Town, you know there were a, a whole lot of wheeler dealers on the take. Mm. The point, uh, point being, like, corrupt local government's not a new thing developed correct. in post-apartheid South Africa. Correct. Um, it's perhaps a little bit more sophisticated in the old school way of doing yeah, things. Yeah. But the, you know, the deepest and most enduring of those relationships is the way that property and local government work hand in hand. And it's not, it's not surprising, uh, you know, municipalities get their money out of service charges and property rates. So their, their very tax base depends on the value of the properties in, in a municipality. In a particular, yeah. And uh, th they're therefore incentivized. I mean, because, you know, when they charge you your property rates, they're charging you a rate on the value of your property. So they have a vested interest in, in, in making your property... In overvaluing it in, to some degree, or... Correct, and also driving the values up. Hmm. Um, so Through... So there's a, you know, there's a... Right at the sort of uh, almost the foundational structure of local government, there is this uh, built-in incentive for potentially a very incestuous set of relationships. Hmm. And... Uh, what was clear to me in looking at Cape Town, I mean, I, I went into Cape Town, so, you know, the, the public narrative uh, was the narrative around the drought. Um, and that had, uh, it was clear the municipality had known about the drought for at least 10 years before it hit. Hmm. Um, in, in fact, when that big Berg River transfer scheme was built by the National Department, they, the deal that they made with the city at the time, they said, listen, in 2019, you are going to run out of water on current projections. Mm. So you have to... It was all kind of laid down that clearly. It was laid down. I mean, um, and they said, you know, you've, you've, so we'll do this big transfer scheme. You've got to do all the other augmentation. The local infrastructure. Yeah, so this is like, you know, managing water demand... Uh, doing the desal plants if you go for desal, tapping changing behavior, changing behavior, all of that. Um, what happens? Uh, I mean, simply put, bugger all. Um, they, they, uh, you know, they did have good rains in in uh, at one point in time, but the long term trajectory in Cape Town has been the steadily drying climate. Mm. So. Anyone in the water game knows that, that Cape Town was high risk. High risk. But uh, but but can I ask you this? Were there any kind of was any thought or planning or any kind of documents, even any studies made as to what what I mean? What was if if you say that this Berg River project was the national kind of in water infrastructure for for Cape Town and its environs? What was the sort of expectation? From the from the local or provincial government as to what was going to happen in Cape Town was it going to be more reservoirs was it going to be sort of more infrastructure replaced infrastructure that kind of that kind of stuff actual physical work well, or was there just a kind of almost a hope in the way that it wasn't going to come to pass? I can't tell you what was in the mind of the politicians, but uh, you know they. They had clearly been briefed. Uh, I mean, the former uh, mayoral committee member, Grant Haskins, uh, r referred to briefings they were given a decade earlier uh, around the impending crisis. Hmm. And I, I couldn't understand why. So, you know, Cape Town's pretty technically competent. I mean, I've hmm. known officials in that metro for, for many, many years. They've got a good team of officials 
very serious water experts. And I mean, has a good government governance reputation yeah. overall, doesn't yeah, it? I mean, it yeah. always does rate still, despite yeah, the still, crisis. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you look at the stats South Africa uh, indicators on, on infrastructure, they rate Cape Town the highest of all the metros. Mm. If you look at the public participation... Uh, pu- you know, p- public happiness with municipal services, mm. they also score the highest. So, mm. you know, on, on many indicators, they're pretty good. They're head and shoulders above most of the other metros. Um, and I was perplexed as to why they had stumbled so badly in the face of their single biggest crisis. As that they'd known about for so long. That well, they'd known that about for had been warned time. about, at least. Um, hmm. So... You know, I, I obviously started digging, and uh, the, um, the, the city denied my research request. Um, mm, in fact, yes, I read that. They, they made me submit a research request before any which, of Which you, you feel was even unnecessary in the first place? Well, it's a little bit odd because any, you know, the, the Constitution gives South Africans right of access to any information held by the state unless it's classified so most municipal documents aren't classified Mm. and it's very difficult to say to you or i or the person in the street you can't research this institution i mean it's it's a it's it's a slightly meaningless decision and for me that was just a red flag i mean i suddenly thought Mm. okay so what are they hiding what don't they want me to find and this got out into the media. I put it on social media. So the string of people start approaching me, telling me stories of mm. purges that have been going down in the administration, uh, bullying, abuse yeah. of, of officials. Quite a dramatic kind of restructuring of many of the, 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 the departments, particularly Major. those dealing with um, housing and infrastructure, if, yeah. if, if I read that correctly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I haven't mean, quite finished the book, but I'm, I'm close. So, so in 2014, they completely liquidate the housing department. I mean, totally liquidated. And by liquidate, it involved two changes of the mayoral committee member in charge of housing because the, the, the people that had been put in place weren't basically doing what the mayor wanted, which was to fire all the housing staff. And that's uh, Patricia DeLille is the mayor? That's Patricia, yeah. Yes. Uh, Then they uh, purge the executive director, um, basically boot him out, and then they purge the four directors under him. Um, And then in the subsequent restructuring, they take the housing department and break it up. So, I mean, they haven't just chased out all the staff. They split off informal settlements. It was absolutely dramatic destruction. Yeah, I mean... You, you look at this and you... And people you, with incredible institutional knowledge as well. They, they, the, these are good people. I mean, I'd worked with many of them over the years. I mean, the executive director went and worked for National Treasury afterwards, right? He was their human settlements policy wonk. Hmm. Highly competent guy. I'd met... I'd worked with many of the directors previously. So hmm. uh, one of them I'd encountered in the urban sector network in the 80s. I mean, she'd been in the game for a very long time. These are committed, dedicated people uh, implementing progressive housing policies and social housing, uh, mainly for low-cost, uh, uh, you know, lo- low-income communities. And I was gobsmacked that they had gone out so deliberately to break a department, break it. Mm. I discovered the same had gone down in planning, um, and particularly the. Pl- the spatial planners. So these are the people that are in charge of, you know, organizing the way development happens in a city so it's logical and meets everyone's needs. It's inclusive. I mean, the big concern of planners is to try and densify in your urban core and create nodes of development and transport corridors that link them up. They call it uh, transit-oriented development, TOD. It's okay. the big sort of... Is that different to catalytic development? Well, I'm not quite sure what catalytic development is. Because oh, no, it's just something yeah, I came across in the books. I'm trying to act no, more no, fancy no. than I am. Oh, well, Patricia decides to back these catalytic projects. 
which are also meant to be sort of sow the seeds for broader kind of yeah, it sounds, community. It sounds great, you know, uh, yeah. a catalytic project which mm. can change the nature sure. of the economy and stuff. Um, I'll come to the catalytic project. Okay, I didn't. Um, I didn't. I was just asking for some clarity. But yeah. She equally smashed the planning department. So uh, this is after human settlements had been smashed. They liquidate planning. They get rid of the executive director. That's the head of department. They get rid of Kathy Stone, who's in charge of spatial planning. They get rid of a couple of other people in that department. They break that department up and spread it again all over the, the administration. Um, and I was trying to find out why they were doing what, this. Yeah, exactly. So what the purpose of that what's, was. What's driving this monumental restructuring yeah. of a machine that basically works? You know, a, a fairly well-run machine. And... I followed each one of the people that had been fired and linked them back to decisions where they had gone against the mail. And the, the flashpoint was that both the housing officials and the planning officials and some of the other infrastructure and engineering people had stood up against a couple of really big developments that the political leadership and the mayor in particular were driving, were driving through the administration. And these were not unproblematic developments. These were developments mostly out on the urban periphery where they shouldn't be developing in the first place. Uh, for instance, the one called West Cape, which was right up the West Coast on the way to Atlantis. I mean, we all know the experience of the Atlantis yep. deconcentration node. And, you know... The, A the wasteland. We, we were told by the apartheid planners, oh, you know, business will move out there because of cheap labor. Well... There's been no economy. They, they've moved, you know, um, a whole mini town of people and dumped them in a place with no industry and no jobs. Um, and West Cape was going to be the same. Even worse, it was within the nuclear evacuation zone. Yeah. There was no transport infrastructure linking it. It had none of the water or the bulk sewerage connections. And to put that kind of bulk in for a, essentially a new city would have absorbed all of Cape Town's capital budget for the next couple of decades. Mm. So it would have meant that you're not doing all the other things that a city could be doing. It wasn't, you know, and do, do yes. this and do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, was, I was relieved to hear there was actually a nuclear evacuation plan, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> yeah. So a number of city departments object, you know. Mm. Um, uh, the mayor rides roughshod over those objections. Um, even you know the political people like Belinda Walker, who had come up with a, a try to reformulate the decision, the mayor just sort of scraps the conditions they've attached to it. So that's the first warning light. You know, um, those officials that stood up on that project now have got a, a mark on their name. Then she moves her attention to the Philippi horticultural area. Yeah, the Philippi one is interesting. It's it? it's fascinating because. Here is some extremely valuable agricultural 200,000 tons of virgin fruit yeah. to the city every this year. Is, this, this guarantees... The aquifer. Yeah, this guarantees... And there Cape seems Town to be no security. awareness of that. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, it's a unique thing because the aquifer... It was just in court last week, I believe. It, it is. They're, yeah. they're fighting a bitter court battle now to try yeah. and reverse all the irregular planning decisions. Yeah. But they're two big developments that the mayor just drives through. Yeah. Um... Uh, what what did you, what conclusion did you draw? I mean, if if I can yeah. sort of summarize in my own head what I've what yeah, I've sorry, read I'm so far. On. No, no, that's it's fine. But I, I'm kind of just I just wanted to sort of speed it up a little bit. If I can join what I think are the dots, property development is linked to party funding, and Patricia Delille as mayor wanted to create her own sort of channel of funding outside of the DA's sort of prescribed funding methods and so wanted to ingratiate herself perhaps with property developers by steamrolling completely um, in that kind of direction. Is that kind of 
Correct. The conclusion you drew, uh, is my mind in the right place there? Broadly. I mean, uh, but just to qualify it, I mean, I, I found, I, I was not able to find any of the evidence about these developers making particular donations to particular parties, mm. either the DA or to Patricia's war chest for the party she was yet to form. Um, uh, what I've done is left the reader to draw their own mm. conclusions about it. But I've assembled uh, minutely all the evidence of all the behavior. Yes, it is very forensic, for and, sure. And a, uh, a set of otherwise irrational decisions. Yeah. Um, you know, where, where a lot of political capital is being invested on developments that are not part of the spatial plan, are opposed by a lot of your technical people. They're in the wrong place. It's not inclusive. This is not development that's creating social housing or benefiting the poor. It's or trying to break down the sort of spatial apartheid yeah, of it's, cities. It's lining the pockets of a, of a few developers. Mm. Um, and some of them are very close to Patricia. You know, there's Mark Wilcox, who used to be the CEO of Mvelapanda, who's intimately involved in the Maidens Cove development. There's Uvest, who, you know, also Mvelapanda has some financial links to, uh, who drive a lot of the PHA developments. Um, there's some financial irregularities going down in Oakland City. Westcape virtually implodes because the guy backing it is extremely dodgy. Mm. Um, so it, you know, it certainly suggests that there's a set of backroom deals being done between developers and political leaders. Um, that you say, of course, has been going on for a century. Centuries. Mm. I mean, it yeah. all goes all the way back to the, the first British occupation of the Cape. And, and would you say, I want to touch a little bit now um, on, on local government, local government legislation, uh, bit more specifically. I mean, those are obviously then issues that you would expect in other large or even small cities, the, the control of zoning planning permissions is actually a very powerful thing, even for a, a local mayor in a small town or the, the, the planning committee in a small town to be in. Is that, is that, yeah. is that true? And I just want to touch on something that you said on the book launch uh, at Love Books last week that I attended with you, where you sort of didn't take full responsibility, but you, you, you had some role in writing up some of this local government legislation. Yeah. or what, You didn't really expand too much on that, but I just... Can, can we maybe talk a little bit about that and what your sort sure. of misgivings are now, <laughs> if I can put it that way? So... Part of what I, I worked in government for some years from 94 until 2005. Um, and part of that period, I was in charge of the local government system in the country. And we put through all the legislation that governs local government today the Municipal Structures Act and the Municipal Systems Act and the way of demarcating municipalities, all of that. Um, so when we were passing this legislation, our central concern was how to drive change through these very fragmented and ossified uh, municipal structures. And we came up with this idea of executive mayors, um, which would be, uh, it's a little bit, it, it's a sort of borrowed from US t cities and their model of you know, directly elected executive mayors who come in and they're a bit like a president. Presidential kind yeah, of, yeah. They set up their own cabinet, yeah. and they run the city, um, uh, even though they still have to account to Defer council. To, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a slightly artificial creation in our uh, system. And we've been sitting you know, a couple of years later with a problem in that I, th I think we've now completely overcorrected and put too much power in the hands of the political leadership vis-a-vis -vis municipal administrations. So as it stands now, all your mu senior municipal appointees are on fixed-term contracts, mm. which are up at the end of a municipal term. And 
every uh, at an election cycle. Then. Yeah. yeah. So every time a new council comes in, mm. uh, even if it's the same party coming into place, they want to bring their, their own, own. They bring their own people in. Mm, mm, mm. So there's this constant churn. No continuity. In local government, and a uh, it creates a very unhealthy uh, line of. Uh, um, I mean, basically, you know that your job's on the line unless you ingratiate yourself with the political leadership. So these officials are extremely disadvantaged vis-a-vis -vis the politicians um, who are then able to demand things that officials should not be allowed, uh, allowing to happen. Mm. Um, so it's enabled political interference in supply chain management, in appointments of staff, I mean, you, there's stories of politicians being involved in the most minute procurement decisions. Mm. Um, in fact, the law is pretty clear. Politicians should not be involved in pr procurement, and full yeah. stop. Mm. Um, but they do. Uh, and, you know, they, they feel nothing of discussing in regional party offices which contracts should be awarded to which, which players. So it creates an extremely unhealthy uh, political situation. Now, I, I've been very familiar with this in ANC-run municipalities. I mean, it's, it's a dime a dozen. Um, yeah. What I didn't expect was to find this level of political interference in a supposedly well-run, clean municipality. Mm. And the political interference was not happening around supply chain. I mean, Cape Town's supply chain is run pretty cleanly. Um, in fact, there's a paranoia about getting a negative audit finding. Right. Um, but uh, on land and property decisions and the allocation of development rights to land, it's a different game entirely. Mm. And the wonderful thing about development rights is that there's no financial transfer. You apply to me for a rezoning. Okay, th there's a small fee. You know, you pay me to... An administrative... An administrative fee. Um, I give you, you know, uh, development rights on your property. I allow you to build whatever, 10 stories, 20 stories. Um, I, you know, uh, there's got to be a certain number of parking bays. Yeah. It, it adds a number of zeros onto the, onto the, the value. value of your property. So you've had this massive inflation of value, but there's been no financial transfer from the municipality to you. So the auditors don't pick it up. I mean, auditors uh, are unable to see what's going on in terms of property values uh, until it sort of comes back into the books through property rates. Mm -hmm. um, so politicians love it. Uh, uh, and there's a whole lot of... You know, th there aren't hard and fast rules about this. A lot of planning decisions are decisions of judgment. Um, and for a long time, um, mayors and members of their mayoral committee have been able to get themselves involved in these kinds of allocations of development rights. And it's a racket. It's a, it's a, it's a racket which you'll find in almost every municipality, but I was mm. particularly surprised to find it in Cape Town. Mm. And um, not only in, in South Africa, of course, as well, we should, we should add um, planning rights and all of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, jeepers, I, I get the private eye these days, and my, you, you know, you read about some of that stuff at the local government level in the UK. It's kind of quite eye-wateringly corrupt as well. But, yeah. but yeah, it's corrupt in that sort of very, as you say, hard to identify sort of way. Because I'm still trying to find out. Okay, the zoning planning planning or rezoning permission is given. Where does the how does the money then sort of find its way back to the person or the party that has granted that permission? I mean, uh, if you say that there's no transaction apart from that administrative fee, is that what forms does that take? Is that a kind of just a sponsoring of a charity or a, an event or buying the T-shirts kind of well, thing? Uh, well, well, I cite a couple of examples about how we do know it's, it's recycled. I mean, for instance, uh, one of the developers mentioned in the book makes generous donations to a number of Patricia DeLille's charities. Um, 
I mean, on the face of it, that's a good thing, but you know, they're also benefiting from, from, from decisions. Uh, uh, the Sun Grand West Casino, during the period that Patricia's provincial leader for the DA, um, and there is a uh, casino license that they've got exclusive rights to. The Western Cape is now considering issuing a new casino license that will bring some competition in. Uh, they, for a number of years, sponsor Patricia's Golf Charity Day. Right. Um, you know, this is not, uh, I mean, maybe I'm being a bit churlish to suggest that there's something untoward about it, but there's a connection between two decisions mm. that, uh, you know, raises a whole lot of questions. Um, on the more serious side, I mean, Brett Heron recounts this instance where He's taken to a DA fundraising event mm, with yeah. all the property developers yes. there. Um, and, and then asked to leave the room at some point. Or he's, well, before they start discussing actual amounts, he's asked to leave the room. But, mm. you know, what we know from that is that certainly almost all the property developers are funding the DA as a political party. Um, uh, what was uh, that classic quote? All the all the all the bad guys are in, in property development, but not all property developments are bad. Necessarily <laughs> bad guys, yeah. Shame. I mean, the, you know. So before you think uh, the pro the whole property industry gets a bad rap, yeah. I mean, there are many I mean, I there are many guys with integrity. Look, I mean, uh, you know, one thing that struck me is if you go into that sort of level of, you know, building a new community or something like that. I mean, it is quite a big deal. You know, there's a lot of money and time involved, and there are risks, and I suppose in that context you want to make things move as quickly as possible so Correct. the thing is as, 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 as risk-free as possible. And I want to just touch and on then the issue of red tape and regulation and compliance yeah. because it's also something that you, you kind of you, you touch on in the book as well as, as kind of a, a debilitating factor on all yeah. of this you know that, that, that it, it's so bureaucratic that it's it becomes almost self-defeating this this quest for compliance and clean government is actually creating dirty government yeah is, is that sort of the right way to i i think you're putting it beautifully uh, <laughs> so so i i spent a lot of time talking to property developers and i, I wanted to get inside their own head and see how they think about the world. Um, and as you correctly say, I mean, the development process for them is a nightmare because if their time frames stretch, so if your development takes six years instead of four years, it can push you underwater because yeah. your holding costs for You're the land and the infrastructure yeah. become exorbitant. So it's... For, for many of the developers, as, as their time frames stretch more and more and they see their development going down, they will do quite stupid things mm. in order to get that development pushed through, mm. including, you know, you know uh, I mean, they'll start reaching out to anyone that they think can fix the problem for them. Yeah. Um, and certainly all of them would have tried to mit mitigate risk in some way or another by making sure that they've curried favor with the political leadership of the day. Yeah. Um, and almost certainly that involves making some donations to political parties. Mm. Um, and I'm afraid that's how the world works. It's, it, it, you know, the, the problem we've got in this country is that there's no transparency in party funding. That's it, yeah. So what's happening, you know, w we expect our political parties to come to the table, fight elections. We don't ask questions about how they get the money to fight those elections. Yeah. And out of the public eye, they're making deals with what people the behind their backs. Is, yeah. um, and you know, it, it's the hard reality of, of politics. You've got to go out and raise the funding. Mm. Uh, there are very few philanthropists out there. They're all going to be asking for some sort of quid pro quo. And deals are done that uh, end up subverting or compromising a, 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 an election manifesto. Um, so I'm n telling the story of Cape Town, you know, partly to illustrate what I think is a systemic problem in our politics. Right. Um, the party funding. Party funding and the secrecy around party funding. Yeah. 
um, this incestuous relationship that exists between developers, developers and, 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 and political Polit leaders. Polit politicians. And, yeah. you know, please don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not arguing against development. I mean, we need development to take place. Uh, what we can expect, though, is that, you know, the person occupying the mayor's office is balancing a whole lot of different needs and interests and ultimately making decisions that are in the public interest. So the developers have got a set of things they need done and, and driven through, but equally there are you know, many layers of society and disadvantaged communities who are not able to uh, get their voices heard properly, whose interests also have to be taken into account. Um, you raised the point about inefficient bureaucracies, and I spoke to quite a few officials inside the administration who well, not maybe hamstrung rather than inefficient. I don't know yeah. if inefficient is the... Because, as you say, they're good people working in these structures, but they are somehow... On the whole, they're good people. One hand tied behind their back through all this red tape and all the hoops they have to jump through. Well, Cape Town runs on... It, 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 it's quite strange. So there's, there's this very pro-market ideology that... that gets pushed down into the administration and the officials are told... The political to ideology of yeah, the DA. Yeah. yeah, they're told to cut red tape and lean in and push developers uh, through. And like a lot of the words that were given to the planners and the engineers was, uh, you know, particularly when they objected to a development, they said, you know, the line to them from the politicians was, the market knows best. Uh, who are you to mm. try and judge what the market should be doing? Um, which is basically saying laissez-faire, you know, yeah. uh, l let the market do whatever it wants. Um, they know best. Yeah. The developers know best. Yeah. But at the same time, there's this very heavy compliance c culture and an absolute paranoia about not getting a clean audit. So, uh, and, you know, in Cape Town, they fire, you know, you, 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 you get a black mark against you from an audit pro query, uh, they fire you. Jeez, okay. So officials are being told two completely contradictory things. Mm. Cut the red tape. but Cut corners where you can. Cut corners where you can, but absolutely uh, no compromise in terms of compliance. Yeah. And they really struggled to navigate between those two mm. poles. And often when they were panicked uh, and in a corner they would then go to legal for a legal opinion. Well, that now adds another three weeks onto mm. a process. And money. And money. Um, mm. And what developers were finding is that the, the administration broke down. I mean, during, during the period of Delil's reign, uh, what with the big restructuring that was happening, uh, she was centralizing power more and more into her office. Uh, they got these contradictory impulses. And... Uh, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, the administration starts grinding to a halt. Um, and the message given, even to like really competent, experienced line managers, is you no longer make policy. We're centralizing all of that into the mayor's office. We're going to drive the big catalytic projects from the mayor's office. We're going to come up with the water resilience plan, which was, you know, the crisis plan to get Cape Town out of its predicament. Um, so they disempowered their most technical experienced bureaucrats. Mm. And it's that condition that they then ran into the water crisis. They just were not equipped. Yeah. Just on a purely technical, bureaucratic, administrative level to make this the, the required decisions. Yeah. And then or that there was yeah. a... a, 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 a a, 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 well, a force was that was forcing decisions that were bad decisions. There, there was this bunch of uh, smart-ass, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> academically highly trained... By the Oxford graduate crew. Yeah, yeah they, they call them the laptop boys. So these are the people that were staffing the mayor's office. I can kind of picture them. You, yeah, v uh, very convinced that... They are God's, God's yeah, gift yeah. to mankind. I have met them. Uh, uh, no experience of actually running government. Quite smart, though. Very smart. Yeah. Very socially engaged. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, They do well in a sort of McKinsey... From privilege, from you would say. Definitely from privilege. Um, and 
they would come into the room where all these senior experienced officials are sitting. They'd open up their laptops and they would start issuing policy prescriptions. And it, you know, it created a very toxic atmosphere right at the top of the administration at the worst moment. Mm. And then to boot it all, you know, the DA sees Patricia doing all these deals. They don't see the ching-ching going into their bank accounts. And they start suspecting that Patricia's building up a war chest to break away. Huh. And all hell breaks loose. So that was the fundamental breakdown. Well, a number of... The I mean, do you think that was Patricia DeLille's plan all along? Is that the sense you get? That she just saw this as a stepping stone, as a... As a, as a um that I can't say. Mm. Uh, I spoke to a lot of the DA leaders on the other side mm. of the battle right. who said they thought she was raising funds for her own war chest. Huh. And you can then understand the intensity of the conflict and how quickly they entrench themselves uh, into this factional contest. Because mm. you know, I, was, I was perplexed. Which also might have been ideological as well. There were ideological elements. I mean, I'm just giving the his, given I the mean, histories you know, of pe the... People have said that Patricia's got a more social democratic stance. I mean, I have to say, given all of the political capital she had, I remember she was, you know, she had a, f a full five-year term mm. plus another two years. A massive 66% that first time around. She, she, oh, she, won, she won a huge mandate. Yeah. Uh, at the time she won that mandate, she had fought the election on a platform of integrating Cape Town and being more socially mm, inclusive. Mm, so it was mm, a great, mm, mm, very mm. progressive mandate. Um, and she had a big capital development fund that had been building up. So, uh, but instead, what did she spend all of that capital on? It was on these huge catalytic projects yeah. that had, had very little of a social or social housing element to them. Yeah, that's the one thing that did strike me, is there was very little effort to... In, we talk about spatial apartheid and, and the need to kind of integrate cities more and, and bring in more low-cost housing, inclusive housing, whatever you want to call it. And you just don't get a sense that that was ever yeah. kind of part of it. And that also just strikes so me as being... I mean, she's from the PAC for crying in a bucket. Well, you know, I, so I, I do believe she has genuine social democratic instincts. But I think her failing was that she is driven by hubris. Hmm. And you did call her a, a power-hungry, narcissistic bully <laughs> at the <laughs> book launch last week. Well, a number of people have used that description, and I, I, I do repeat it in the book. Um, hmm. uh, she certainly has a uh, paranoia. I mean, you're either completely loyal to her, Mm. or you're opposed to her. There's no, there's no middle ground. And it's a, uh, an extremely thin skin on someone who you would s expect to you know, be a little bit more mature and inclusive in their politics. Mm. So she's got a way of operating politically that alienates everyone except a small core around her. On the other hand, she says that you know, there's this neocon wing in the DA who have always been threatened by her socially inclusive, uh, non-racial politics mm. and uh, were scheming all along to get her out. And I do believe that there, there is an element... There elements of that. There's an element of truth to that argument as well. Mm. So there was definitely more right-wing forces that used the fight against Patricia to mobilise and re-establish control over the city. Mm. Um, but the end result is catastrophic. Right. And it, it's catastrophic for the DA because essentially what's happened is there's a right-wing drift. They've lost some really good, competent black leaders. Um, and, of course, they, they piss off the key people of Cape Town. So, you know, Cape Town, the, the DA, in the 2019 elections, there's a fall of 11% sure. in electoral support from the 2016 to 2019 mm. Uh, 2016 local government, yeah. 2019 national, national, a fall of 11%. I mean, for any party, that is a catastrophic drop. I mean, that's a message and a half. Sure. So, 
you know, they were obviously put, o put off by the factional battle that was happening. Um, and the way was that was all managed as well. I mean, the whole way that <coughs> DeLille eventually left the DA, I found still to this day quite, I mean, it was opaque. Opaque and, and incompetently handled. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, there, there was this succession of moves to try and get rid of her, and yeah. they fumbled each one of the moves. Uh, There's votes of no confidence. And, and they opened themselves up to legal challenge. I mean, the process to throw her out of the party uh, was irregular. They didn't follow proper procedure. Um, they s uh, you know, announced that she was being removed as mayor and then didn't do anything. They, set they, they, they lost the first no confidence vote. Um, so, I mean, I think there was a, a, a series of fumblings of the ball during that period. Hmm. Um, and the lessons of that split are not learned. So we've been watching now at a national level almost the same show yeah. get played out. Um, and, you know, I guess there had to be some accountability uh, for the, you know, the electoral losses during 2019. Um, whether you can lay that all at Musi Maimani's door is, is another story. I mean, yeah. I understood the DA collectively should be responsible for that. Mm. Um, and also, I mean, the optics are, are, are not great, are they? I mean, Lindiwe Mazibuka, Herman Mashaba, Gwen and Gwanya. Yeah. Patricia DeLille. Yeah. You just sort of wonder what the long-term plan now is for the DA. I mean, to what, survive on white middle-class support somehow. Yeah, I mean, all of its political mergers have been disasters for it. You know, there was the... They started with the new national party. Uh, that fell out uh, after a few years in a very bitter, acrimonious battle. Uh, Helen Ziller in her autobiography says that the NNP infected the DA with a whole lot of, uh, you know, corrupt practices around manipulating branch numbers and votes and uh, manipulating internal organizational selection processes. Uh, then there's the ID. Patricia thought it was a merger between the two parties. Uh, I think for Helen and a lot of the people in the DA, it was a takeover. So there was no genuine attempt to, to incorporate to or understand. To understand. Hmm. And the blind spot, you know, unfortunately, the blind spot of, of white middle-class liberals is race. Because all of us, you know, and I include, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a liberal, but I'm certainly white and middle-class. Uh, we're unconscious of the way that subtle words and practices and meanings are interpreted by people that have suffered hundreds of years of political oppression. And I think it's a little lame to say that we're now living in a post-race society. I mean, to do that without redress of what's gone on before is to basically, uh, you know, implicitly approve of, of the injustices that were done. Mm. Um, I'm a libertarian, sort of work hard and you'll be all right. And if you're not, if you're poor, you're lazy and yeah. without any context to, to where we are in this country. And, you know, Cape Town remains a city without redress. Uh, mm. I described the massive dis, uh, dismemberment that took place in, in the, the railway lines and... Yeah, the railway lines. I mean, you know, uh, this wasn't just moving people from one home to another. It was uprooting their entire social existence mm. and their livelihoods. And I suppose, I mean, you touch on that um, in the context of Cape Town, but it is a national problem that the national psyche of all people mm. has been damaged yeah. by our history, by this violence yeah. um, of, of removal, um, which... Um, is reflected in the, the the passion around land and redress yeah. that we have still not really dealt with, that many of the white middle class do not want to even acknowledge, I would, I would think, I would say. Yeah. And the, the thing that 
staggered me. I mean, I, I, I genuinely thought that the, the DA could move beyond the battle with Patricia, uh, learn some of the lessons, deal a little bit more convincingly with the, 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 the racial dynamic that was at play in the party and become a, a, an opposition party that can genuinely contest power at a national level. With certain liberal ideals yeah, still. Correct. I yeah. mean, you know, we, I think to have a liberal party in the mix is a good thing. Um, but, you know, for a party that's bleeding to its left and to its right, um, but moving to the right uh, and consolidating around your traditional white middle class base is basically a strategy for painting yourself into a corner, or you move to the left and you try and occupy the center ground. I mean, which choice do you make? Because they've now made a very deliberate choice. I mean, not that I'm saying Helen Ziller herself is a right winger. Um, I think she's a, a, a true believer liberal. But she's being used as a cipher, as a proxy for a very conservative element in the DA to entrench themselves. Mm. Um, and they've lost any real credibility in terms of appealing to a, a non-racial constituency. Um, mm. So I think we, we're seeing a major political realignment happening. I mean, the, the current context, uh, all the parties are failing us. I mean, totally. the My ANC goodness. is paralyzed by internal it, factions. It can't, it's uh, f not fit for purpose, is it? Now? And, you know, the hard decisions to lead us out of the economic mess that we're in, it's just not able to take because mm. it's all too contested. In what are those hard decisions? Well, fixing this economy is going to involve some really heavy lifting with getting, putting the unions a little bit back into their box, sorting out labor market issues, fixing the state, uh, ripping the patronage networks that have entrenched themselves in the state out of it. Um, in the bureaucracy itself. In the bureaucracy. Mean? I mean, you know, and it's not just party patronage networks. Mm. It's, you know, uh, it's patronage networks that run all the way down to the p petty corruption at the bottom. Yeah. Um, uh, we're going to, we, uh, yeah, our civil service is massively bloated. There are large parts of the civil service that I can tell you, you can shut you them can tomorrow. You can cut them off and you won't notice a difference. No one will notice. <laughs> you know, we, I, you could halve the state without anyone blinking. Crikey. Um, and let alone the state of the SOEs and... Yeah, so, you know, all of those are, are hard decisions. You know, I, I'm not a macroeconomic expert, but, um, mm. you know, so we can debate whether interest rates should go up or down. And right. da, da, da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You're talking about just some fundamental structural kind of... But, you know, decisions. Yeah. Uh, so I, I feel the ANC is paralyzed in terms of making those decisions. Mm. But what is the alternative at the moment? Mm. I mean, do you give it to the Gucci populists of the EFF? Mm. Uh, do you give it to this fractured DA that mm. is unable to navigate some of the basic contradictions facing our society? Um, there's, there's a lacuna, there's a space. Um, and you know, maybe what's about to happen is that something's going to move into that space mm. and put an, another alternative on the table. I mean, I was quite Fascinating. interested. I was interested that both Musi and Trollope resigned not just from their positions but from the party as well. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether we're seeing the formation of some sort of new party to move in. Wow, but I mean, that would be... That would require some group from the ANC to join them somehow, wouldn't it? Or, or, or a lot of goddamn money. Because, I mean, we've seen with Cope, Bakang, ID, good. I mean, it's Yo, all good and it's all good and well. We, but we've I mean, not had a happy it's, experience. It's not, there's, no, there's been no real traction. But maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe, uh, you know, there seems to be now globally some something happening on the streets 
that is forcing now a change in thinking at at a at a at a at a leadership level in in a lot of lot of countries i think you sometimes i sometimes just see right wing fascism on the rise everywhere but i i think there's something else going on mm. and um maybe maybe that's that that's that kind of thing will 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 happen here my fear is you know a lot of street civil society street protest has been quite disjointed and seems to lack any formal direction or, mm. or leadership and um, i mean maybe that's what you you're saying that there is a there is a space now for for that leadership to step into it's going to be fascinating to see i just want to touch briefly again or go back to patricia de lille because mm. she's now a minister in the government yeah i mean i, I well, how, how did you react to that well I, i was quite taken aback um because she had so sort of dramatically shattered the uh, cape town institutional framework um and you know she's in charge of some really large pieces of of property now um you know including all these well um, it's department of public works right department of public works and they added infrastructure to it i mean wow um uh <laughs> dripping with rents uh, uh with uh, a department that really i mean you know uh, city of cape town at least worked the department of public works largely doesn't work. Uh it's a monumentally large ponderous inefficient bureaucracy. Mm. Um uh, I mean I remember 15 years ago trying to uh, get them to to uh, give us new offices for the Department of Environmental Affairs. It was impossible. I mean I spent five years by the time get I left out. by the time I left we were still discussing no progress no progress uh even though there was space available yeah so m- maybe patricia's the right medicine for the department of public works stomp I mean, in there stomp in there get uh, rid of the deadwood and y- off you go yeah <laughs> who knows you know she might do some great things mm. um but certainly in in her period in cape town it was uh, became an incredibly toxic environment and her hubris got in the way of any positive change. Uh Chippy, we need to um start uh, just wrapping up here. I do want to just touch on now the um the Cyril Ramaphosa uh, presidency. You were um I would have to say part of that central to that team that that um managed his election effort. um and i don't want to go into too much of the detail i mean, i've discussed with you in another uh, occasion that, that just the shock of the amount of money that that was mentioned in terms of of his uh election bid and that's within a political party let alone yeah. a goddamn national election yeah um it kind of says something again about this whole party funding issue yeah. although that is a different matter isn't it a political party's sort of internal machinations yeah. are separate to an electoral campaign i would imagine but it did it did sort of leave a a, a pretty poor taste in my mouth but uh, i want to rather just get some reflection from you um on where the ANC and particularly Cyril Ramaphosa's presidency is right now what were your hopes and expectations why did you fight so vehemently for him to become the president and yeah. w- w- where are we now yeah so i mean j- just to be clear i you know i've been involved in in uh, minor roles in the ANC for a very long time um uh it's not an uncritical relationship so uh, uh i've you know i i think how to steal a city was you know i i think proved my credentials that you know i'm no i'm no party hack uh, i'm a player but uh, i it's not it's not an unquestioning loyalty that mm. i have 
Um, and I've been involved in Which says a lot for the party itself, I suppose. Y yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I've been involved at various times in fundraising efforts. Um, and I've discovered how uh, difficult it is to, you know, you often set out with grand principles and it's quite difficult when push comes to shove to hold the line. Mm. Um, so I did play a role. It was a very small role in the CR17 campaign. I got engaged in that campaign because I believed passionately that Cyril Ramaphosa was the right person and that uh, a Zuma-backed uh, presidency would be absolutely catastrophic for this country. Mm. I know some people have said, well, we should have allowed it to go that way and it would have caused the ANC Final to... Final bang, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think there would have been so much destruction on the path to the point of getting out mm. that I'm not sure we'd ever have recovered at all. So right. I make no apology about backing the man. Um, uh, I think in terms of the internal ANC politics, he's been masterful at trying to juggle between these different factions. And I think he's stemmed an enormous amount of the rot. Mm. So... He's still the guy. Mm. Uh, I can't think of anyone better for doing this. But it doesn't uh, detract from the fact that he's navigating di almost diametrically opposed factions mm. that often um, mean that there isn't a clear leadership and decision-making from the ANC. And that's the problem that we're facing. I think it's becoming increasingly paralyzed and unable to make the quick, hard decisions. Um, Let's see, Cyril may still lead us out of this mess. Um, I know that when all of the uh, details were revealed about the, the CR17 campaign, people were shocked at the quantum involved. Uh, I mean, it was half a billion. Um, uh, that's a big amount of money. Unfortunately, that's what presidential uh, campaigns take. Yep. And it's just that for the first time, we've actually now seen inside... You've seen behind the curtain a little you, bit. You've seen behind the curtain, and you've mm. now seen uh, what goes on. Mm. And that's partly enabled because right at the beginning of the campaign, I mean, we were given a very clear instruction. We're going to do this properly, transparency, legally. We're going to set up a trust. We're going to set up a bank account. We're going to make payments into and out of that account. We're going to keep proper financial records. We're going to audit the accounts. Uh, we're going to make sure that every cent spent actually gets spent on what we intend it to be spent, and it's not being used to pay bribes or buy votes. Uh, we were determined never to buy anyone's vote. Hmm. Um, uh, there was an absolute clear instruction that no deals were going to be made with any funder in exchange for favours, and none ever were. Um, the one area where we did slip up on, uh, and it was you know slightly below the, the radar, but this half a million, the, uh, the Basasa five hundred thousand, half a million donation came in from Basasa. I mean, it, it was peanuts, particularly compared to what they'd given to other candidates. Um, mm. It 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 hardly made a blip on the radar, and we should have turned it back then and there because even though th the full extent of the Basasa corruption hadn't been revealed there were question marks that were already being raised. Mm. Um, and many of us, if we had known about the donation, would have bounced it. Mm. Um, so, you know, the president's apologized for that. I don't think there's much more to say on that front. Mm. Um, I believe it is, uh, was not the, 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 you know, the, the order of the rule. I mean, most of the donors were the established corporates. Mm. These are the same donors they that everyone. have funded the DA. Mm. They've uh, funded other candidates uh, yeah. campaigning. You know, they probably also fund the EFF. Um, so, you know, we ran, we ran a clean campaign uh, with transparent finances. And I think we were subjected to some heavy public scrutiny, and we've, you know, we've passed the test. No one has been able to show any corruption in that campaign. Mm. So I would do it again if I was given the opportunity. It was a privilege to serve in that capacity. I play no further role in government or in you know, the, the, the CR campaign, mm. but it was a privilege to play that small role that I did. I suppose one thing that people are waiting for... Um, 
is 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 something more tangible i.e prosecutions to come out of these yeah. commissions yeah but again i suppose the inaction or inactivity of the npa is part of the legacy of the Yuma, zuma presidency or, or how do you it's it's kind of is it like a three-dimensional chess game that that cyril ramaphosa is playing and just the npa component is just one of those dimensions then or look cyril from what I can see, uh, is genuinely committed to an independent prosecution's authority and would not in any way seek to try and direct or pressurize them uh, either for or against any particular prosecution. Um, I saw some statistics that Shamila Batoy released the other day where she was just tracking the number of prosecutions that the NPA has been driving and has shown the huge leap in prosecutions in the last year. Hmm. Um, so it certainly looks like she's getting a lot more prosecutions Some momentum going. under her belt. Um, but these are not the big, high-profile prosecutions that we're all waiting for. Hmm. Um, hmm. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, you're starting to see action being taken by a number of different government agencies. And I get the sense that a real drumbeat of momentum is, is building up. So SARS is now going after uh, all of these high-profile individuals that have been uh, sucking the hind teat of, of state capture and creaming off billions. Mm. So I think that's going to really start warming, it, uh, warming things up. The asset forfeiture unit is back yeah. in action. Yes, I saw that. And Billy Hoffmeyer's in there, and he's he's remarkable. Uh, and mm. I'm pretty sure we're going to see a lot more action in terms of asset forfeiture coming down the pipeline. Um, you know, a couple of months ago, there were the prosecutions taking place around the northwest municipalities and the corruption there. So that's a, a strong point. And Zondo Zondo is doing some remarkable work. So. You know, watch the space around Estina mm. Dairy Farm. I mean, they've, yeah, no, they've sure. really dug into that and are about to, uh, you know, sort of put the redress to that dreadful public protector report on the Estina Dairy Farm matter. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think we all have very good grounds to, to be impatient and to say, where, where are the prosecutions? But I think if we look objectively at the facts, things are really starting to accelerate, and they're going to continue ex to accelerate. Chippy, on that note, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. It's always a, a pleasure to, to chat to you. Great chatting to you, Nick. The House Divided is uh, available at all major bookstores and online. It was quite uh, quite a discussion. I have not completed the book. I'm very close to it. Um, it's complicated, fascinating, and uh, kind of shows some of those gray areas that can emerge in, in local government, um, whatever the party in charge, I suppose. I've been remiss in the past not to mention that the editing software for this uh, production is provided by Hindenburg Systems. They're uh, a Danish uh, company. It's a post-production tool specifically for, designed specifically for audio journalists. Uh, you can find out more about Hindenburg Systems at hindenburg.com. Voices from SA is hosted on Audio Boom. You may also subscribe to us. Voices from SA is hosted on Audioboom. You may also subscribe to Voices from SA via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, Deezer, or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers.